Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And this morning we'd like to take a second look at verses 6 through 10. And this time focus on what is one of the most sobering doctrines found in Scripture, and that is the doctrine of hell. So Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And again, I'll begin reading in verse 5. So please uh, give careful attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. And may God bless the reading of His Word. You know, the doctrine of hell has pretty much been banished from most churches today. It has disappeared from most pulpits because we live in a world that basically worships a God of one attribute. And that is God is a God of love. Hell has become too terrible, too painful to be true. So the church has become ashamed and embarrassed of the Bible's teaching on this subject, and so it has deleted it outright. For those who still believe in hell, as is taught in the Word of God, we are viewed as being cruel and sadistic and horribly hateful Embracing a worldview that no longer reflects the cultural sensibilities of the world in which we live. And yet, there it is in Scripture. The doctrine, plain and clear. Unfazed by modern unbelief. Because after all, the denials and refutations that are thrown at the doctrine of hell from all of our contemporary skeptics and deniers and unbelievers, and all that they have done to unleash all of their sophisticated wisdom to try to deny the doctrine and ridicule it by their verbal attacks, trying to destroy it, trying to wipe it off the planet, and yet the Scripture's teachings on hell stands. It's a dangerous thing to deny what God has so clearly affirmed in His Word. As you think about this uh, particular doctrine, 
And I may need some help with my... Let's see here. Let me see if I can get this. There it is. It's starting to come up. Uh, I don't have it on my screen up here. But anyway, so who is the primary teacher of the doctrine of hell in the New Testament? It's an interesting question because for most people they are quite surprised to find out that it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Thank you, Dwayne. Uh, If you look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, it's Jesus who said, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So this is what Jesus taught. Uh, This is something that He expounded, and that's just the tip of the iceberg of the Lord's teaching on the subject of, of hell. There's a bunch of other phrases that our Lord makes reference to. The next slide, please. It's the Lord Jesus that has described hell as a furnace of fire, an unquenchable unquenchable fire, eternal fire, and even the author of Hebrews says our God is a consuming fire, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm does not die, They're handed over to torturers until they should repay all that was owed. And he described it as eternal punishment. And all of these expressions don't come from Augustine's lips or Calvin or Luther or or even Jonathan Edwards, of whom I've read probably most of his sermons on hell, they did not invent this language. This came from the lips of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when we follow Christ, and we believe in Christ, we must certainly believe in what He has taught us. And very frightful, the idea of the weeping and gnashing of teeth, which occurs seven times, always from the lips of the Lord Jesus. The weeping certainly speaks to the torment of the suffering. The gnashing of teeth, interestingly enough, is used consistently throughout Scripture as not someone who is in pain, but someone who is expressing and venting their anger. So that hell is a place not only of unending weeping, but of ongoing hatred and enmity toward God. J.I. Packer said that all the language that strikes terror into our hearts is all directly taken from our Lord's teachings. It is Jesus Christ that we learn the doctrine of eternal punishment from. Well, in addition to what the Lord Himself taught, the Apostle Paul has given to us one of the most compelling and forceful passages on the doctrine of hell in all of Scripture in 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 6 through 9. If you can throw that up, please. Uh, Go back a slide. Thank you. 
So notice again in the passage that we've just read what the Apostle Paul describes it as, that they will be repaid with affliction. Thank you, brother. I'm so helpless when it comes to this stuff. Blessed to have these, these great helpers. So, he says that it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It's a part of God's justice. His character. He'll be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the Gospel of the Lord Jesus. Retribution, vengeance, punishment. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Referring to their body and soul. We'll deal with the word destruction in a little bit. And then they will be basically cast away from the presence of the Lord. And that will be forever. So that the Apostle Paul is affirming what Jesus Himself taught by this incredible description of hell. Because the Bible's teaching on hell is so dreadful and so terrifying to think about, it's not surprising that many have sought ways to deny the doctrine, and even some within so-called Christian evangelicalism have attempted to deny its reality. It's so difficult to contemplate, we can understand that. I mean, the idea of hell is so horrendous on one level that it's hard to even think much about it. And so many have obviously sought to disprove it and reject it. Jonathan Edwards said, This doctrine is indeed awful and dreadful, yet tis of God. It's taught by God. So we cannot reject it. Some of the attempts to deny the doctrine of hell, one of them, of course, is the doctrine of universalism. The bottom analysis is that no one goes to hell. Everybody goes to heaven. Obviously, to hold that view, you've got to reject the entirety of Scripture because this idea of universalism is certainly man-made. It comes from their own imaginations. They manufacture it because of their distorted view of God. And normally it's because God is so loving and so infinitely full of love that He would never send anyone to hell. And so they seek to reject the doctrine based upon the way they envision God. But again, some of the problems with this view is that the Scripture simply does not teach universalism. Many go to hell. Jesus in Matthew 25, the sheep-goat judgment, said that these, the goats will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible simply does not teach any view of universalism whatsoever. Now some will add to this idea that when we die... Yeah, some will go to hell, but there's an ongoing, never-ending opportunity for second chances. And that eventually, all who are in hell will repent and they will go to heaven. They'll eventually 
turn to God no matter how hardened their hearts is so that eventually, though some may initially go to hell, they'll eventually go to heaven because they believe in a source or a kind of second chance, which again is not taught in the Bible. Hebrews 9.27 seems to refute that when it says, and then as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. There's no reference to second chances anywhere in the Bible once someone dies. So universalism, though held by some, certainly does not fit with the biblical description. A second attempt to deny the doctrine of hell is annihilationism. And they'll even point to our verse in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. That says they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. And by that they mean that when someone dies as an unbeliever, their body and their soul will be annihilated. They will be brought into a, a eventual non-existent status. They will no longer exist on any level. They'll be totally and completely annihilated. And I was uh, listening recently to R.C. Sproul, who certainly believes in hell, but he says that there's a, a part of him, and, and really we could probably identify this, that we might wish that this was true. But of course it is not. Now, the Bible teaches the doctrine of hell, and though we can't fully understand it, we can't understand God without it either because it does reflect His character. Now, there's several problems with the idea of annihilationism. Number one, when they refer to the few verses that speak of eternal destruction, and they say the word destruction means annihilation, that's not what the word means. There's no place in Scripture where that word means annihilation or implies annihilation. Some of the other uses where Paul uh, mentions this word, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, I've decided to, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The destruction of the flesh doesn't mean the annihilation of the flesh. It decays, goes back to dust, but it's not annihilated. It, it does not enter into a state of non-existence. It's still there and eventually it'll be resurrected. So the idea of annihilation with the word destruction simply does not fit. In 1 Timothy 6.9, Paul says that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And here again, the idea of destruction is a synonym for the word ruin. And it's the idea again that uh, they will enter into a state of degradation from their foolish life that wants to get rich. They'll fall into all these temptations and snails, snares and, and harmful desires which plunge them into ruin and destruction. In other words, they will reap the consequences of their sin. The destruction, the bad habits, the consequences of pursuing that kind of a lifestyle. It does not imply annihilation at all. 
It just means that it will bring death and loss of divine blessings. It will bring ruin. It will bring suffering into their life. But there's no idea of annihilation in this verse either. And this should also be clear that annihilation is not in view because the next phrase that Paul says after he mentions that these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, he says, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And this expression, away from the presence of the Lord, does not imply annihilation. It means they are pushed away. Not that they stop existing, but they no longer have that presence, that closeness with God. They are now banished away from the presence of the Lord. They still exist, but they no longer enjoy the favor of God, the blessings, the love, the joy of God. They are separated from God. But the idea of annihilation is not implied at all by that expression. They are removed from God's loving presence. They are banished. They are separated. And when Psalm 16 says, in your presence is fullness of joy and in your right hand there are pleasures forever, they experience none of that. They are separated from that. Separated from His joy. Separated from His pleasures. Doesn't mean they stop to exist. No, they are now cast away. It's like Adam and Eve being banished from the Garden of Eden. They still exist, but they're expelled from all of those loving, joyful benefits from God. The same thing when Jesus said those dreadful words in Matthew 7 to all those false believers who claim, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles. And He will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you who practice lawlessness. Depart from Me. He doesn't say, I'm going to annihilate you. He says, now you'll be separated from all of My grace and mercy and love. So this is the idea. And it does not imply annihilation even in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. But notice also that word eternal destruction. It's eternal. And the word eternal is very much a word that implies ongoing existence. Eternal destruction is parallel, if you will, with eternal life. So for example, if you look at Matthew 25, verse 46, and notice the parallel opposites between the damned and the redeemed, the damned will go into eternal punishment, but the redeemed go in eternal life. And the word eternal in neither place implies a ceasing of existence. They are parallel. It's a, it's a parallel opposite. And you cannot hold to one without holding to the other. Jesus taught them both in this verse. So that the separation, the destruction, the ruin will be everlasting. It will never end. And that does not imply annihilation. Charles Spurgeon said that the hell of hells will be the thought that it is forever. It is eternal. And again, annihilation 
does not imply that at all. Another thing that would refute the idea of annihilation is just some of the other teachings of Jesus when He speaks of an eternal sin. For example, in Mark 3.29, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So the sin that never dies. It's, it's never obliterated. It's never annihilated. They become guilty of an eternal sin and they will never have forgiveness. And again, very sobering words, but it does not imply annihilation. And also the verses that speak of this suffering being eternal and also conscious seems to refute any notion of annihilationism. Back in Matthew 25, that sheep-goat judgment passage that Jesus spoke, look carefully at how He described the doom of the goats in the passage. Then He will also say to those on His left, those would be the goats versus the sheep on His right, and He will say to them on His left, Depart from Me, separation, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. There's no annihilationism there. They are banished. They are sent away. They are expelled. Depart from Me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, the goats go to the same place that the devil goes to. Now in Revelation 20, there's a description of where the devil goes. And it says in verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the eternal fire Jesus referenced up above. And brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night for how long? Forever and ever. So the goats, the unbelievers, go to the same place that the devil goes, and it is a lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There is no end. There is no annihilation. There is no state of non-existence that they might hope for. This is sobering, isn't it? But again, this is what Jesus Himself taught. I want to show you one other passage that Jesus taught that emphasizes the idea that annihilationism is not what Scripture means. And if you will, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 16. This is that familiar passage, story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, we have uh, traditionally referred to him as Dives. And that name comes from the uh, Latin Vulgate. For when it translated rich man, it used the Latin word dives, and we bring it over into English as Dives. And so we've kind of given this rich man the name Dives, but uh, it's a story that Jesus told. And I'll start reading in verse 19 of Luke chapter 16. 
Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the rich man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's heaven. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, There is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone comes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. So within this story of our Lord, he refers to the torment several times. He refers to the agony several times. There is no indication whatsoever that there is any annihilation for the wicked. And this again is a very sobering truth. What Jesus is teaching through the story, the same thing He taught in all the other expressions that He gave, because no one taught more on hell than Jesus in the New Testament. But all of these things are teaching us that hell is eternal It is conscious. The man wanted a drop of water to cool off his tongue, being in agony in this flame. It is bodily as well as soul suffering. And it's a place of no return. If you go to hell, there is no escape. This is the sobriety of just the teachings of Jesus on this doctrine. So there's no way that annihilationism, as much as people want to hold to it, as much as they may wish that it was true, can be true. Because it's simply not what Scripture teaches. So annihilation is an attempt to deny hell, and it fails. The third and final denial I want to just uh, briefly speak to are the, um, the many books, the many experiences that people have supposedly where they die and uh, they go to this very pleasant place 
it's an experience of euphoria and serenity and good feelings and there's light. And then they come back from the dead and they tell everybody, look, there's nothing to fear about death. There is no hell. It's a beautiful, peaceful place on the other side. And people buy those books and they believe it. Most of those things have been fabricated, uh, fraud, but never trust those kinds of experiences. Trust the Word of God. Don't trust what someone claims to have had an experience of. John Gerstner, I think, summed up all of these denials of hell when he said, modern Christian theology has tended to take either the pain out of eternity, i.e. universalism, or the eternity out of pain, annihilationism. And this is because the sinful mind of man hates this idea. Not only hates God, but it hates the idea that one day, They will have to stand before a holy judge and give an account for all of their sins and be justly condemned and punished based upon their own sin. And they so hate that idea of being held accountable that they simply deny it. But if hell is not true, then Jesus is a false prophet Paul and Peter are false prophets. All of Scripture is a false prophecy if hell is not true. So, Christ would be not only a false prophet, He'd be a liar. So, in light of the doctrine of hell, there are a few other things I'd like to point out. Uh, Because one of the things the Bible also teaches about this doctrine is that there are uh, degrees of punishment in hell. This was something that Jesus taught. Remember, when He's standing before Pilate during His trial, shortly before He is uh, condemned and crucified, He tells Pilate, that he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So Jesus acknowledged that some sins were greater than others. Now any one small sin is enough to condemn us to to judgment and condemnation. But within the categories of sins, apparently Jesus said that the one who delivered him over to you, that would either be Caiaphas, probably in view here, has the greater sin. could be Judas probably Caiaphas, but his sin is greater. So there are different categories, levels of sin, degrees of sin, if you will. And then Jesus on a number of occasions spoke about judgment having various degrees of intensity. So for example, in Matthew 11, verse 22, speaking to Chorazin and Bethsaida, two of the little cities on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. He said, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. So their judgment will be less than Chorazin and Bethsaida because they had Jesus there. They actually witnessed some of the miracles and Tyre and Sidon did not have that privilege. They had less knowledge. 
So their judgment will be more tolerable. There'll be less in severity. That's the idea. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus also said in a parable that that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will 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 receive many lashes. In other words, he knew the master's will and he did not obey it. Many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. In other words, the more knowledge, the greater the judgment if you don't repent and come to faith in Christ. And that is why the Pharisees and the scribes in particular come under the most intense, severest wrath of God. Jesus, again, in Luke 20, told His disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love respectful greetings in the marketplace, and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. So their condemnation will be greater. So, so, the, so the, the fake Christians, the false converts, the people who say they believe in Jesus and they may go to church regularly, they may have been baptized, but there's really no desire to please Christ. There's no love for Christ. There's no trusting Christ alone for our salvation. These kinds of outward hypocrites that flaunt their, their holiness and their righteousness before people, they're holier than thou. They love to condemn other people, thinking themselves to be so religious and proud. They will receive the greater condemnation greater knowledge, greater judgment. So there are various degrees of hell which we would certainly expect to be true from a God who is perfectly just. Adolf Hitler should suffer more in hell than others. Mass murderers should be condemned greater than others that do not commit sins of that intensity. God is just. Everyone gets exactly what they deserve based upon their sin from a a righteous and a holy and a just God. There is a warning here though for those who are not true believers. Paul in Romans chapter 2 says, because of their stubbornness and unrepentant heart, They are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. See, every day an unbeliever chooses not to repent and believe in Christ. He's adding more sin to that great pile of sin for which he will be judged. Paul says they're storing up wrath for themselves. Storing it up like a squirrel out there taking all the pecans and going and burying them. They're storing them up for the winter. And an unbeliever, every day they live and do not repent and come to faith in Christ, you are storing up more of God's just wrath for your sin. 
So there's a warning as well. You can increase the intensity of your judgment by continuing to sin and not come to Christ who's so willing to save you if by the grace of God you repent and place your faith and trust in Him. He's willing to forgive you. And when you reject that gospel command to repent and believe, then you're just adding another log to the fire for which you will be condemned for. So why is hell so important that it's taught in Scripture so often? Well, there's several reasons, I think, why we could say that the doctrine of hell is an important part of Scripture. And one of those, of course, is that it reflects the very character of God. Heaven reflects God's love and mercy and grace to the undeserving. But hell reflects God's justice and righteousness and wrath to the deserving. They get what they deserve. But see, the reason why God created, and this is one of the hardest things for us to embrace and believe, but why did God create all things? What's the ultimate purpose? To put His glory on display, right? Jonathan Edwards has a great treatise called The End for Which God Made All Things, I think is the name of it. And he lays out this thought very powerfully. That the reason why God created the heavens and the earth and created us and the angels is to put His glory on display. So if all we had was heaven and everybody goes to heaven then you find God's love and mercy and grace exhibited throughout all eternity. But if that's all we had, then at least half of God's attributes would be in everlasting eclipse. So hell reveals God's character just like heaven reveals God's character. Only here it's His justice, His righteousness, His holiness, and His wrath. It reveals His holiness because sin is far more evil than we really can comprehend. We don't understand sin. And that's why it's so easy for us to overlook it and deny it. But see, hell ultimately reveals the holiness of God and the evil of our own sin. Because what is our sin? Our sin is rebellion against the rule of God. Our sin is a a desire to put ourselves on God's throne. Our sin is the attitude of despising God's holy law as something harmful and, and bad versus something that is spiritual and righteous and good. And it's basically to make us the judge. And so our sin in effect is throwing dung on the feet of God, speaking anthropomorphically, spitting in His face. And who are we doing that to? The holy judge of the universe. We do not realize that even though we may take sin very lightly, God does not. And God's holiness will be avenged of such crimes against Him. Because He's holy. 
So hell reflects the holiness of God. It also reflects the infinity of God. Who have we sinned against? An infinite God. The crime is really infinite in its proportions, so must the penalty be as well. But if you think about it, let me add this to it. When people go to hell and perish the thought, but when people go to hell, they never stop sinning. There's the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Every moment they're in hell, they continue to add more sin and more sin to their crimes. They never stop. And that's another reason why hell is everlasting. Because the weeping, the gnashing of teeth, that anger against God never dies, that animosity, that enmity towards this holy God never one day runs its course and ends. It is always there. And that's why the punishment will never end. But hell also reflects the justice of God, as I've already indicated. Would God be be a just judge if He let a vile criminal off scot-free? And sometimes we hear about this in the news. Someone who's definitely guilty, but the courts just don't hold him accountable. We, we hear that in the news, don't we? And, and there's something that we know in our gut that that's unjust. That that person should be punished. That's what justice requires. So if you have all of these criminals before a holy God and God just says, you're all forgiven. He has denied His justice. That God would be an unjust God. And the only way we can be forgiven is that God's justice was satisfied for our sins. Not by sending us to hell, but by sending Christ to the cross. And that's where He fully satisfied the justice of God for our sins. God cannot just forgive because He would violate His justice, which would violate His character, which is something He cannot and would not do. So, one of the reasons why hell is important is because it reflects the very character of God. The second reason is that it's an important part of the Gospel. Sinners need to realize really what they're up against if they reject Jesus Christ. The Gospel and evangelism must include this doctrine. If we water down the Gospel presentation and the truth about hell and ignore it, then we do sinners a tragic disservice. We not only minimize their sin, we minimize the character of God, we minimize the cross of Christ, we minimize the consequences of their sin, and we minimize their need for Christ at all. But tell a sinner that the consequences of his sin is separation from God, which some Gospel tracts, that's all they say, if you don't receive Jesus Christ, you'll be separated from God. They don't really talk about hell. They just say you're separated from God. And they quote Isaiah 59.2. Our sin has made a separation between us and God. Well, what kind of a motivation is that for a sinner to turn from his sin that he loves and embrace Christ? Separation from God? Well, I've lived all my life separated from God. 
I mean, that sounds like you're giving me heaven. If I'm just separated from God, that's what I want. I don't want to be near God. And if all you're telling them is the consequences of their sin is separation from God, he says, hey, that sounds pretty good. I'll take that any day. Because we don't tell them the reality of what's facing them if they refuse to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. But if we tell them they have disobeyed a holy and a righteous God and has offended His His justice, that they stand as a condemned criminal before this God and they await eternal fire of hell and darkness and horror and torment of body and soul and total despair full of weeping and gnashing of teeth from which there's no escape, now he might think differently if he knows the truth about what awaits him when he dies. See, the difference between gospel presentations is like the difference between a man who believes that he's only been beaten, bitten by a mosquito. Oh, my sin. Yeah, just, just bitten by a mosquito. Versus a man who knows he's been bitten by a deadly poisonous viper whose venom is racing to his heart at that very moment. Who is more inclined to immediately seek out help? A mosquito bite? Or you've just been struck by a cobra and you just have minutes to live? Who wants the antidote? Who wants the medicine? Who wants the doctor? And yet when we soft sell the doctrine of hell, we are minimizing the whole notion of why they need Christ. Hell is not a paper lion. It's a real lion. And the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, says it is real. It is not imaginary. And the reason why the doctrine of hell is important because we need to speak the truth in love and pray for the Spirit of God to guide us in how we can tell the truth about what awaits those who die without Christ. So it's an important part of the Gospel. And finally, why is hell so important? It's actually very sanctifying for us to know the doctrine, to sometimes think about it, because it will have a very sanctifying effect upon the believer. See, when we remember what hell is and all of its goriness and all of its pain and misery, we now better understand what the Lord Jesus saved us from. We now better understand the nature of His love that sent Him to the cross to suffer in our place and to bear the hell that we deserve. It will encourage us to love Him and to see the depth and breadth and height and length of His love for us, which, which should cause us and motivate us to love Him more in return when we see all that He endured to save us from what we deserve. Because as terrible as hell is, the suffering of Christ is counted greater than even those who are in hell. Their suffering will never end. But Jesus Christ, I can't explain it, but because He was the perfect sinless Son of God, who took all of our sins upon Him and suffered 
somehow, in some way, the equivalence of hell so that He fully satisfied all of God's justice and wrath for our sin. Praise be to God. We'll never fully comprehend but He drank the full cup of God's wrath for all of our sins, even down to the dregs, to where at the end of His time on the cross and He shouted out, it is finished. That was not a cry of defeat. That was a cry of victory. He had accomplished redemption for His people. And when we think about what what we would endure in hell if we were cast there ourselves, then it can't help but make the cross of Christ precious to us and to appreciate what Jesus suffered to save us. By the way, can you imagine if you had no Savior and stood before God and you heard those words from that righteous judge on His throne, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels? Can you even imagine what it would be like to be in hell right at this moment? The outer darkness, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, the eternal fire, the worm never dies, torment that never ends, banished forever from the favor of God. Can we even begin to imagine what that would be like? And then to think of all of that eternity of suffering placed upon Christ who bore it all, who satisfied God's justice for our sin. He'll make the cross much more precious to even believers who from time to time stop and meditate upon what Jesus saved us from. By the way, who did Christ save us from? Or what did Christ save us from? He saved us from God. He saved us from God. And He saved us for God. From God and for God. That's the grace. That's the love of Jesus Christ. So hell reveals both His holy wrath and judgment but it also reveals His glorious love in the Gospel. And our response to this doctrine, in addition to what I've already said, is just that when Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem to be crucified, and He came up over the Mount of Olives, and now He's looking down upon Jerusalem and He sees the temple. How did Jesus respond to their sin? He wept. Because we live in a world full of people on their way to hell. And while they're alive, Jesus wept for them. He wept. And we can only pray that God would instill within us a greater love and concern for the lost around us. Pray for more boldness and wisdom in sharing the Gospel with those who are lost around us. Because they may not know what they're facing, but we know what the Scripture says. And may the Spirit of God give us a greater opportunity and a greater motivation and desire not only to pray for their salvation, 
but to seek to share the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ saves. Because if they die in their sin, then there's no hope. So let the preciousness of the cross be our message to the world that's dying around us. Because Jesus saves. And that's what they need to hear. And Jesus saves us from the wrath of God to come. And may our joy in that salvation overflow. And may others see it within us as we seek to share the good news with them. Well, this is one of those kind of doctrines that's very difficult for us to even study and meditate upon, but it's very sanctifying. It's important because it reflects the character of God. It's a vital part of the Gospel. And it's very sanctifying for us who believe it and who have put our trust and faith in Christ. So may God sanctify us through this passage. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we just want to <clears throat> thank You that when the Apostle Paul wrote this incredibly graphic description of those who will one day be judged, he did it to give comfort to the church that those who are afflicting them will one day be afflicted. And Lord, that's a comfort that we can draw from that as well. But Lord, give us also the heart of Christ who wept over the sin of Jerusalem. Give us a heart that doesn't want sinners to go to hell. But that takes courage and boldness to speak the truth to them. So Lord, open up those doors of opportunities. May the Spirit give us that confidence and boldness and love for sinners that we would actually share the truth in love, praying that You might grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So Lord, may this doctrine which is hated by most and embraced by Your people be sanctifying in our hearts and lives today. For We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.